A quick warning that this episode contains some strong language and a reference to suicide. Okay, people, we're going to Milan, Italy. Late on a Thursday night in May of 2010. It's a quiet night in the courtyard at number 11 Via Fata Bene Fratelli. This building used to be a palace, but today it's Milan's central police station, and this is business as usual. Until officers bring in a 17-year-old girl named Ruby. You know, the Ruby scandal is such a strange one because you have this young girl who gets arrested for essentially, you know, stealing something from one of her roommates. And she tells the police, listen, I'm someone important. Ruby has wide eyes and pouty lips. And let's be real, she doesn't look surprised to be here. This isn't her first brush with the cops. But a few hours after she arrives at the police station, something happens that will change everything. The phone rings. On the other end of the line, Sylvia Berlusconi. Okay, here's what you need to know about Silvio Berlusconi. Some people like to say that in Italy, he's like Rupert Murdoch and Warren Buffett rolled into one. But that doesn't even do justice to the influence he has. In Italy, he's everywhere and he owns everything. Oh, and I almost forgot. When Ruby walks into that police station, Berlusconi's also the prime minister. That's who calls about this random 17-year-old at a local precinct police station a little before midnight on a Thursday. And so everybody raises an eyebrow. And sure enough, Berlusconi knew exactly who Ruby, Ruby quote-unquote, the heart stealer, was. Ruby's stage name is Ruby Rubicori, Ruby the heart stealer. So what does the prime minister do when he hears Ruby the heart stealers at the Milan police station? He tells the police that she's the Egyptian president's niece and he doesn't want an international incident. He tells the police to let her go. So they do. The end. Thanks for joining us, everyone. From Wondery, I'm Whitney Cummings, and this is... <laughs> yeah, right, like, that's the end. That is not the end. Because obviously, this one little phone call raises a ton of questions. For one thing, Ruby is not related to the Egyptian president. That was a lie. All of a sudden you have someone as powerful as Berlusconi making a call and this girl who's in jail for stealing out of her roommate's purse is sprung from jail. And that raised a lot of eyebrows. It's like, who on earth is this girl? Where does she come from? How does she know Berlusconi? And more importantly, what does she know? Because Ruby definitely knows something. And the answer to what she knows is just two words. Bunga, bunga. Bunga, bunga. Two words that will spell out a world of trouble for Berlusconi, for Italy, and maybe the world. Two words that are the mystery at the heart of this story. What the hell is bunga, bunga? Well, let me just give you some advice. If anyone ever asks you to bunga, bunga, run. From Wondery, I'm Whitney Cummings, and this is Boonga Boonga. In the land of Boonga Boonga, the maze mansion's in the sky. Won't you be my bluesy at the hullabaloozy? You better be ready to fly.
This is the story of a charismatic multimillionaire businessman who got his start in real estate. He owes his fame to television. He's sensitive about his hair. And then, one day, he decides to run for office. His opponents call him a buffoon. Political elites call him crass. They call him corrupt. But he shrugs them all off. And he wins. Silvio Berlusconi, the 50th Prime Minister of Italy. See, some prime ministers in Italy don't last long. Just ask Prime Minister number 46, Bettino Craxi, a guy you'll get to know soon enough. Silvio? He becomes the longest-serving Italian leader since the Second World War, one of the most powerful men in the world. He looks unstoppable. And he might have been. If it weren't for three very different women. You've met one of them already, Ruby the Heart Stealer. Don't worry, we'll meet the other two before we're done. This is an eight-part series on the rise of Silvio Berlusconi. And this is episode one. I know how to make people love me. Sorrento, Italy, 2005. And at a party convention, hundreds of delegates and government officials are packed into a hot, smoky bar. It's been a long day, and it's late. Everyone's drunk and tired and ready to go home. Until a man climbs up onto the stage and grabs the mic. He's got that old-school crooner's slick-back hair and the perfect bronze tan. Now, here's the thing. The guy is short. He's like five foot five, but up on stage, he looks a lot taller. Someone records the whole thing on their cell phone. The man's beaming as he looks out into the crowd. He's in his element up there, and the crowd knows it. They start chanting, sing us a song, Silvio, sing us a song. Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi waves at the crowd to be quiet. I used to support myself during my studies at the Sorbonne with this next song, he says. I studied during the day, and at night, I sang. Berlusconi has always been a singer. By the time he was a teenager, he was in a rock band with his friend, Fedele Confalonieri. Fedele Confalonieri, presidente di Mediaset, che è il primo broadcaster commerciale italiano. Fedele's name actually means faithful in Italian. So even though he's 82 now, he and Berlusconi are still best friends. And he says he can still play those songs from back in the day. They played covers. 4, 55, Elvis Presley, quel genere lì, Platters, questo genere di musica. And also Italian music. But the band had a problem. They couldn't keep Silvio, who was the band's bassist and lead singer, on the stage. Già allora gli piacevano le ragazze, no? E allora era molto spesso cantando. Berlusconi kept going down to the dance floor to dance and flirt with the girls in the crowd, so Fidele fired him and then regretted it immediately because clubs wouldn't book the band without Silvio. It's a lesson Fidele wouldn't be the last person to learn. Silvio gets what Silvio wants. It's no use fighting him. Better just enjoy the ride. By his early 20s, Silvio was playing nightclub sets on cruise ships in the Mediterranean. Seven nights a week for six hours a night from 9 p.m. to 3 a.m. And he loved every minute of it because audiences loved him. He never wanted to stop. 
That's Berlusconi talking about how he went to Paris to sing in the cabarets and scored what he said was a number one hit, a song called Le Café de Ballet. It was awesome. Constant applause, standing ovations. Until his dad showed up. Luigi Berlusconi, profession bank clerk. He sat in the back, watching the show. Then Luigi followed his son back to the dressing room and asked him, point blank, Are you really planning on being a singer for the rest of your life? Um, you know what, Luigi? I can actually answer that. Once you get up on stage, I know those lights, and you hear that crowd cheering for you, you never stop wanting it. Ever. Berlusconi went home to law school. After graduating, he borrowed some money to buy a little bit of land and build some apartments on it. Then he sold that, bought more land, built more apartments. Other developers wouldn't touch some of the land Silvio buys. One plot's right next to the freaking chemical plant. But for Berlusconi, he makes it work. And then some. E poi io cominciai a inventare un modo diverso per vendere le case. Cioè, appena... Berlusconi says, I invented a new way of selling homes. And by that he meant, as soon as each floor is built, he furnishes the units, throws some prints on the walls, and sells them. He cuts corners, he bends regulations to his will, and it works. Soon, Berlusconi is rich. That's step one. For step two, Berlusconi's ready to be really rich. And the man's got ideas about what life should be like, about how people should live. He doesn't just want to put roofs over people's heads. He wants to make them happy all the frickin' time. And he's got a plan for how to do it. He buys a new plot of land for dirt cheap, once again, far outside Milan, a place he calls Milano Due, Milan 2. You know, the cleaner, better version of Milan, like the sequel. Well, Milano Due, in some sense, should be very familiar to many Americans who have seen a large, expensive, gated community. That's Alexander Stila, a professor at Columbia University who lived in Italy for most of his career. Milano Due is a cluster of red brick apartment buildings with a lake and a fountain in the middle. Silvio puts in the plans that he's going to build a hospital as part of it, which gets him special zoning exceptions. But then he never builds the hospital. But he builds the rest of it, and Italians looking for American-style life buy and buy. Milano Due is a huge success, and inside those apartments is the thing that changes everything for Silvio Berlusconi. Television. Silvio wires the apartments of Milano Due with cable TV. But 
There's a problem. TV in Italy back then is, well, it's really freaking boring. For years, the Italian state has had a monopoly on television stations, playing such hits as Verdi's Requiem by the state TV's house orchestra. Look, it's beautiful, it really is, but it's also an hour and a half long. But if you want to change the channel... Politicians droning on in the most confusing, esoteric terms possible. It's a total snooze fest. Change the channel again? You can't. That's it. Two channels. Then here comes Berlusconi, and he's not offering Italians what they need. He wants to give them what they want. So when the government starts allowing private TV stations, he's ready. Like, Take the opening credit sequence of an early variety show of his, Drive-In. So picture it, the studio audience sits in classic cars arranged around a stage like an old drive-in movie theater, cut to a line of people waiting to get in, including a short old man who's standing eye to eye with the exaggerated breasts of a tall blonde, cut to a guy pumping up a bike tire, except every time he pumps, the woman next to him's breasts grow bigger. Big-breasted women ride rocking horses, naked women wrestle, pies get thrown by, you guessed it, women with giant tits. Are you noticing a theme here? Sort of like taking the worst of American TV and lowering it two or three levels with the added element of nudity to it. This is a country so traditional that just a few years earlier, they were debating whether or not divorce should be legal. But Italians love the shows on Berlusconi stations. So in the context of the Italy of the early 1980s, which is a time of political conflict, extreme politicization, Berlusconi's TV offered a completely different model of life, which was an American model of suburban developments, no shame or embarrassment about spending money and showing it off, wearing expensive suits, driving big cars. Italians want more, but Berlusconi can't make him fast enough. So where does he go for shows that celebrate an American type of lifestyle? That's right, Berlusconi's brotherland from another motherland, the good old US of A. To really launch his TV empire, he got the idea of bringing Dallas to Italian TV. The state TV, Rye, had actually put on a few episodes of Dallas. They'd been wildly successful, but it was kind of too showy, too materialistic. There was stuff about adultery and betrayal, and it wasn't suitable for Rye. So Berlusconi had no inhibitions about that sort of thing, saw that it could be enormously successful. And in a sense, Dallas is sort of the model of Berlusconi's life vision, of Berlusconi's own life. By the early 1980s, he's got 27 local stations all over Italy. Silvio never quite made it as a singer, but he's found his audience again. The man's found the love. And that's huge, people, because this story is about a guy who loves to be loved in every possible way. Way. I mean, wait till we get to his third term in office. It gets it just gets crazy. He loves to be loved and he knows how to make people love him. It's his superpower. And 
he's about to train it on the people who run the country because there's a little problem with this TV empire of his. It's not exactly legal. You're listening to Bunga Bunga, a podcast produced by Wondery. For the best in high-quality, thought-provoking content, check out Wondery's catalog of over 50 number one Apple podcast hits and thousands of hours of immersive storytelling. There's something for everyone on Wondery. To get even more out of Wondery, join Wondery Plus, where you can enjoy over 40,000 ad-free episodes of your favorite binge-worthy podcasts, as well as gain access to amazing live streams and more. Join Wondery Plus today in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery, code Wondery. In the mid-1970s, the Italian government passed a law that allowed private businessmen like Silvio to own TV stations. But they meant local stations, not national networks that might compete with the state-owned ones. But Berlusconi's gone ahead and built a national network anyway. I mean, technically it's not a network because he's not broadcasting a single station across the country. Instead, he comes up with a clever workaround. His former lawyer, Vittorio Dati, remembers Silvio calling it Grosso pizzone. the big pizza. He says Berlusconi had this idea where he put the same programming on tapes. Then couriers would shuttle around these tapes to local stations that he owned. Each courier was like a pizza delivery guy delivering identical pies across the country. It was basically a national broadcast without ever breaking the law. His old buddy Fidele the Faithful, Confalonieri, puts his philosophy best. If it isn't expressly forbidden, then it's allowed. That's how Berlusconi operates. And Berlusconi's got an army of advertising salesmen who are going to eventually help him sell himself to the whole country. What Berlusconi did really brilliantly is he had this expression called il sole in tasca, the sun in your pocket that every salesman should wake up every day, look at himself in the mirror. When you look at yourself in the mirror, Berlusconi told them, you have to like what you see. That salesmen should be physically attractive, that they should be in shape, that they should be well-groomed, that they shouldn't have long or scruffy hair, that they shouldn't have beards, they should take good care of themselves, that they should present a relentlessly positive attitude toward everybody they encounter. These guys don't just have to look like Boy Scouts. They've got to act like them, too, and leave every place better than when they found it. If they were to go to the bathroom in some place where they're going for the work and they found a dirty toilet, they should clean it because somebody might think that they had left whatever waste was left behind. Berlusconi turns his army of fresh-breathed, clean-shaven ad men loose on businesses and bathrooms all over Italy. See, Berlusconi was already rich. And all that TV advertising is making him really rich. And to protect his 
non-national, totally local, completely legal, not a network network, he knows he needs protection from the government and he needs it at the highest levels. And no, Silvio is not running for prime minister just yet. That's coming later. In the mid 80s, the leader of Italy is a guy named Bettino Craxi. That's Craxi, addressing a socialist party convention from a massive old factory floor. Heavy machinery towers above him. He's got large square glasses. He wears drab suits, but behind this bureaucrat chic style and cranky demeanor, Craxi's got an iron will. Here's Vittorio Dati again. Craxi's a socialist, he says, but one who likes wealthy society. Yeah, workers of the world unite in the five-star hotel suite I live in. Craxi likes good wine, expensive meals, and showgirls. He likes rolling through the city with Berlusconi and his crew. So Berlusconi and him are friends, right? Well, yes and no. The other thing which may have been original to Berlusconi, and I think is kind of genius in its own way, is he had a sales pitch, which he referred to as il cliente stronzo, which I translated as the asshole client. This is an important Berlusconiism. That every once in a while you run into somebody who you just can't stand, that you can't deal with, who makes your life impossible, who says no to everything, who makes a problem out of everything. And Berlusconi said, this is the person you should focus on. If you can make the asshole client your friend, he is your friend for life. Because here this guy, Berlusconi says, he wakes up every morning and he looks in the mirror and what does he see? A shit. He feels like shit. People don't like him. People don't treat him well because he's an asshole. Then he runs into the salesman who manages to smooth off his rough edges, manage to make himself feel a little better. Suddenly they're they're buddies. And then you really have that person on your side for the indefinite future. And Craxi? He was a major stronzo. That's the Italian word for asshole, by the way. Stronzo. You know, one of the most stronzissimo people you could run into. He was arrogant, difficult, bad-tempered, demanding, all the rest of it. He was classic asshole client. And Berlusconi realized he needed Craxi, and that Craxi needed Berlusconi. So Berlusconi would humor Craxi, find women for Craxi. So I wouldn't say Berlusconi likes Craxi, but Craxi is the ultimate asshole client. Berlusconi needs the prime minister on his side to protect his network and his growing fortune. And it's totally working for Silvio. Until October 16, 1984, when local authorities, tired of Berlusconi's breaking the law, start to come after him. In three regions, they shut down his local stations. And people freak the fuck out. They literally storm the streets, screaming, freedom of television. They flood parliament with angry phone calls. People want their Dallas. They want their dynasty. His old friend Fridelli says the kids want their Smurfs. 
This is a country that barely watched television 10 years earlier. Now, Italians need their fix. And that's exactly when it comes in handy that Berlusconi's been, what, what's the Italian expression? Buttering his back? He's been buttering the back of the prime minister for years. This is when Craxi steps in and issues a decree protecting Berlusconi's patchwork of stations. Crisis averted. By 1986, Berlusconi's the Italian Rupert Murdoch. He owns the three largest private TV stations in Italy, one of the largest daily newspapers, the largest weekly magazine, and a booming real estate empire to boot. Quante cose fa lei? Edilizia, televisione, editoria. Ma una volta io ho scritto con un The interviewer is saying to Berlusconi, you do a little bit of everything, construction, television, advertising. You'd also be a showgirl even if your tits were tiny. How do you do it all so well? And Silvio replies coolly. What do you want me to say? I'm good. We're dancing to my tune. I know how to sway you. I know how to make you love me. Milan in the mid-1980s is a non-stop party. Berlusconi's former lawyer said they called it Milano de Bere. Milano to drink, as in the city's so cool you can just drink it up. He says that it's a city based on optimism, on spending money, design, fashion, marketing. The people are beautiful, the coke is good, the money's even better. But on New Year's Eve 1986, Berlusconi is pissed. The New Year is off to a bad start, he yells. See, there's an old superstition in Italy that whatever you do on New Year's Eve is a sign of how the rest of your year is going to go. And Berlusconi's out celebrating with his number one asshole client, Prime Minister Bettino Craxi. The two most powerful men in Italy have plans to meet up with two showgirls from Berlusconi's variety show, Drive-In. But there's a problem. No, it's not that Craxi's married or that Silvio's already engaged to the woman who will become his second wife. No, not that. The problem tonight is that Berlusconi and his wingman Craxi have been stood up by a couple of showgirls. Two girls from Drive-In were supposed to come and they stood us up. Craxi's furious! We know about this call Berlusconi made to another friend, by the way, because the police were tapping the man's phone. Why? Don't worry about it. You worry too much. It's New Year's Eve. Relax. What do you care about driving? Berlusconi's friend asks him. What do I care? It means we're not going to fuck. If the year starts like this, it means we won't fuck anymore. Don't worry. Berlusconi would live to fuck again. But soon, this whole New Year's thing was the least of their problems. Starting with a guy from Craxi's party flushing cash down a toilet. In the early 90s, police arrest a senior official from the Socialist Party trying to flush $6,000 down his apartment toilet. When he's caught, authorities find that the officials got $10 million of kickback money socked away in a Swiss bank account, which seems like a lot for a career politico. Now, it might have all blown over, except Bettino Craxi, who, as the head of the Socialist Party, is basically this guy's boss, decides to diss him publicly. 
Craxi calls him a rascal that casts a shadow on the entire party. The guy behind bars is so offended by Craxi's remarks that he decides to get his revenge. He's going to show that he's not the only politician on the take. He talks and talks. He names Craxi. Then he names the whole party. Then he names other top political parties, too. Pretty soon, this guy's saying that all the politicians in Milan are dirty. It's the start of a scandal, one that earns Milan a new nickname. Tangentopoli. Bribesville. Kickback City. Scamalot. Magistrates in Milan launch Operation Clean Hands, one of the biggest crackdowns in European history. Italians are no strangers to corruption, but they ain't seen nothing like this. Mayors, business leaders, police, tax officials, $4 billion worth of bribes and kickbacks. One in three politicians in parliament is under investigation for taking bribes. There was almost universal euphoria around these investigations as if the country that had been kind of held hostage by a system of corruption had liberated itself and was overjoyed. I remember the day they arrested a man named Salvatore Ligresti, who was an important builder, someone, you know, kind of in Berlusconi's category. And I remember this guy saying, Cazzo! Hanno arrestato Ligresti! Cazzo! That means, fuck. They arrested Ligresti? Fuck. Wow, they're going all the way to the top with this thing. In other words, no one is safe. Not anymore. Now, when Craxi steps out of the five-star hotel he lives in, he's surrounded by police officers for his own protection. The crowd shouts, Bettino, you want this money too? As they hurl coins at his car. It's an Italian rite of passage for corrupt politicians, a send-off reserved for the worst thieves. And it's not music to the ears of Silvio Berlusconi, who suddenly finds himself alone. Many of Berlusconi's allies are in jail, and his fellow billionaires are dropping like flies. Gabriele Cagliari, a petrochemicals magnate, suffocates himself with a plastic bag in his jail cell. Raul Gardini, Italy's most famous industrialist, shoots himself in the head the morning of Cagliari's funeral. Franco Franchi poisons himself with the exhaust from his car. Renato Morese, Mario Camaschi. By the next year, Italian government is total f***ing mayhem. MPs are yelling, thieves, thieves, at their disgraced colleagues. On the parliament floor, there are punches being thrown, people being grabbed. Someone tosses a whole stack of papers in the air and they rain down on this mass of suited politicians. Sounds like total and complete chaos, right? Not to Silvio. He sees an opportunity. Because besides the occasional riot, being an Italian parliament is actually a pretty sweet gig. Just ask Berlusconi's former lawyer who, yes, would eventually end up as a member of parliament, thanks to his friend Silvio. Ma certamente il Parlamento italiano è estremamente generoso nei confronti dei suoi componenti. He says having a parliament ID is basically a free ticket to everywhere. You get a high salary, a lavish expense account, no receipts required, and after serving just one term, 
whether you actually show up or not, you're locked into a fat pension for life. But Berlusconi doesn't need any of that. He's got money. What he's interested in is a very different kind of job perk. Italy has always had strong protections for members of parliament in granting them immunity from criminal prosecution. Immunity. If you get elected, you can't be arrested. Berlusconi certainly would have probably slept a little more comfortably knowing that he had parliamentary immunity because the magistrature was beginning to look into wrongdoing and bribe-giving within the Berlusconi empire. Berlusconi's terrified of what's coming next for him. He has enemies trying to take away his television network, lawsuits mounting against him, and other rich guys in Italy are killing themselves. And now it looks like Operation Clean Hands is coming for him. But there's something different about Silvio Berlusconi. He's not like other rich guys, because people love him. It's another AC Milan soccer victory in the books. Tens of thousands of fans pour out of the stadium and into the streets. A stretch limo tries to push its way through the crowd, but it's no use. The fans mob it. They know who's inside. The team's owner, Silvio Berlusconi. Did I mention that Berlusconi bought one of Italy's most popular soccer teams in the mid-80s and turned them into a champion? Yeah, he did. Fans outside the limo shout, Silvio, you're a god! I love you, you gorgeous piece of ass! Then one fan shoves his face against the glass. Silvio, just tell us who to vote for. We'll give you eight million votes. To give them to you personally would be the best. Vote for me? Little old Silvio? Now that's not a bad idea. Berlusconi is living in a position of extreme vulnerability. He is massively in debt, spending an enormous amount to get this TV network going, enjoying a quasi-monopoly, which is a, a very fortunate position to be in, but it's actually totally unregulated and arguably illegal. Somewhere inside him is bubbling up the idea that here I am, I have to put up and take all this crap from these mediocre political hacks who've never run anything. I've created this empire. I employ tens of thousands of people. Berlusconi tells his driver to stop the car. He gets out and says, my friend, as a matter of fact, I'm thinking of founding a party of my own. That is on the next episode of Bunga Bunga. From Wondery, this is episode one of eight of Boonga Boonga. I'm your host, Whitney Cummings. I host another podcast you should check out called Good For You. Alexander Stila's book is called Sack of Rome. Benjamin Gray wrote this story. Associate producer is Guglielmo Mattioli. Additional reporting by Julia Alagna. Fact-checking by Jacqueline Coletti. Managing producer is Lata Pandya. Sound design by Jeff Schmidt. Our executive producers are George Lavender, Marsha Louie, and Hernan Lopez from Wondery.